everybody, and welcome back to the Learning Machine Podcast. This is Raven, here with my co-hosts, Nathan and Sam. Today, we'll be hearing from Jasmine Owens, a pre-K-12 education policy advisor at New America, and Elena Silva, director of the pre-K-12 education team, also at New America. Jasmine and Elena's research lately has largely focused on the many challenges that have occurred in schools since the pandemic started, including current arguments around critical race theory and culturally responsive teaching. Today, we'll be taking a look at these debates from a state-level view to get a better sense of what has formed and fueled anti-CRT language. How does that sound to y'all? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. So first, I want to get your thoughts on this. Some have argued that because critical race theory is not necessarily taught in schools, anti-CRT legislation is merely symbolic. Sam and Nathan, before you respond to this, remember everyone out there that we'd love to hear your thoughts too. You can join the conversation on Reddit and Twitter. Head to learningmachinepodcast.com to find out more. Okay, Sam, what is your take on this? Uh, You know, I mean, I understand the argument that the legislation might be symbolic because I do think that it comes from a symbolic place uh, from the the kind of rage machine on the political right that wants to uh, make a point more than actually uh, write legislation that's going to affect important change. Um, But the bottom line is that this kind of legislation is going to have an impact on the ground. We are going to see effects from this, even if it is just a simple chilling effect causing teachers on the ground to feel like I don't feel comfortable discussing issues of race with my students, uh, bringing up these questions. I'm not sure what I can discuss safely in my school district to the degree that that even a, a piece of symbolic legislation would have that kind of an effect. I think it's hugely problematic. I don't know, Nathan, what do you think? That's the problem, right? Is that the chilling effect that's going to happen at local schools is that Programs that are, you know, focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion are not going to get the funding, not get the, the support, not get the, the nod of approval from local school boards, right? The, the legislation itself, I don't think is going to, you know, we're not going to go to the point of making it illegal to teach about race in schools. At least I hope not. But many kind of anti-CRT legislation does have this profoundly symbolic impact in the, the, the sense that all of the implementation details are at the local level, but there is this guiding, you know, now overarching mandate that makes it much harder to continue doing work that was already difficult enough. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're both giving me a lot to think about. Um, and so did Jasmine and Elena in the interview that I had with them. Um, let's take a listen to just a section of it. Um, to hear their perspectives on anti-CRT legislation. I think, Elena, you should start because you're the one with the PhD and you've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to argue that I have been doing it for longer than you since we're from different generations. That's fair. So I'm the old one in the group. I'll take that. Uh, I'll take that hint. Um, but you have been you have been writing about and talking about this um, more recently uh, than I, Jasmine. So I will pass it off to you pretty quickly. Um, I will start by saying that uh, 
I uh, studied uh, multicultural education for some time when I was doing my graduate work and even uh, prior to that was involved in a lot of efforts um, if here in Washington, D.C. and then in California um, that were primarily at the time called multicultural education. We were trying to ensure that uh, students had, had access to materials and to uh, teaching and pedagogy um, that really was relevant to their lives. I mean, that was the bottom line. We wanted them to feel like they belonged in the classroom. To Jasmine's point, you know, the classroom and schools being safe and also like wonderfully amazing places where they could learn to grow and understand themselves and their worlds. That's the idea. That's the vision. And so for a lot of students that it wasn't happening. And so it's you see curriculum, you see instruction and you see school spaces that are um, really not set up to make feel to make students feel engaged and to make students feel like they're recognized and that they're represented. And multicultural education was um, a big push to write to write that. Um, it was also to specifically right some wrongs, which is that there were a lot of just inaccuracies in what was being taught in um, schools, which is still true today. Um, so critical race theory uh, was, in, at least in education, was in part born out of that. Um, the It as a framework, as a legal framework, didn't start in education. Um, it was, uh, you know, a framework that was designed to help us understand as a society um, the role that race plays, the role it has played in shaping this country, the role it continues to play in shaping this country. Um, and understanding that and the connection, so you're, in this case, you're connecting critical race theory, um, this legal framework uh, with these efforts in schools. This is me reflecting like 20, 20 some years ago, um, this effort to, to bring multicultural education in schools. Like how do you connect those two things? Um, there was a, there were a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of ways in which multicultural education seemed, uh, you know, it was I think you know heroes and holidays. There's a lot of talk about about that, how it was uh, it was to make people feel better, and it was to sort of bring diversity into classroom, and that was very true. But there was also, as I mentioned, like a a real critical lens to it that we were trying to bring in. So it wasn't just that; it was really like, okay, but let's understand our world. And that meant that you had students asking really tough questions. And that's where I see this intersection between critical race theory and multicultural, what was called at the time, multicultural education. Now we refer to it as culturally responsive um, education and, and, uh, and other terms as well. Um, on the critical race theory piece, it was then um, and it is now. And I'll let then Jasmine, you can take it from here. Um, a, a really important framework that was clearly spelled out in a way to help people see what in schools were was at the time called a hidden curriculum, but in our world, really, in our society, was a real hidden layer of um, what's of how decisions and how policies and how laws are made and how deeply race has played a role in that throughout the history um, of this country and and still does. And it's very easy for people that are not well-schooled in race, that don't talk about it, that didn't grow up uh, around it, um, and that are not part of these conversations, to miss that, to just not see it, and to not understand it. And that's why it's important that I think it's really being elevated into everyone's consciousness. That was a really great summary. I think the only thing that I'll add is, like, in the kind of I don't want to call it debate because it's not really a debate. It really seems like it's just the right yelling 
and and being angry about critical race theory, right? But what's being uplifted as critical race theory, what their grievances are with critical race theory have absolutely nothing to do with the actual critical race theory framework, right? With the four, it's like four main assumptions or, or pillars of critical race theory. What they're actually... Um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Campaigning against is a push toward equity, right? And and as Elena was talking about with like multicultural education, that that push toward making sure that students feel seen and reflected in their schools, in their curriculums, in their classroom. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, why do you think that? Um... CRT has become such a hot button issue right now as of the past few months. I think it's, it's easy to message it. Like it's easy to call it bad, right? Like critical race theory just sounds, you know, overcomplicated and unnecessary and, K-12 spaces, right? Just off the the name of it, right? Um, But I think that, you know, the right has always been better at messaging and naming than the left has. And I think that's, you know, not something that we're going to solve for, obviously. That's something that we can figure out in this conversation, but like really does lend itself to how this, this, has unfolded, I guess, in, in the public eye and in the media and in, in school boards, it, it's, um, it's inflamed people, it's enraged people, and it's easy to do so because it's complicated and hard to explain, you know, and that's, I mean, we, we have a messaging problem, I think, on the left side. I, I would add that I agree, we definitely, um, there's a lot of messaging on both sides and um, that's a big part of this. I think at the core, I would add that um, there's, it's hard to know, like critical race theory is, it's hard to grapple with. It's not so hard to understand. Like you could lay it out and Jasmine, you could lay out, you know, the four tenets of critical race theory, because you've written about them. We've talked about them, um, you know, but, but one of them is that policies and laws have been structured and passed in this country to maintain a status quo, which has been one of white privilege. There's race all over it. Um, to to sort of say that is is simple right now in terms for me, but for for people to understand that and grapple with what that means, which is that it's baked into everything. That's hard to know, and it's it's hard to to understand that and feel um, and not feel fear or sadness or grief or anger toward that because it's a pretty horrible reality. Um, and I think there are plenty of people who don't want, who don't see it that way. They don't think it's a reality. They don't experience it that way. It's not part of their world and they don't want it to be. They really want a post-racial world. They want the United States to get past it. They don't understand why we can't. And last year in particular, I should say 2020, 2019, 2020, the, the deaths of uh, uh, George Floyd, like murders of Breonna Taylor and other people, you know, brought a lot of things to the forefront. Were they there before? Sure. Should the people have been talking about them all along? Absolutely. But it, it, it was a big shift in 2020 that I think we're, we all are, are sensitive to. 
Well, that meant that there was a lot of space for organizations and institutions and people to start talking in very frank ways and start raising critical race theory again. It was a moment. It was like, okay, people, why is this happening? Well, here's why. Because it's baked, it's baked into our system and it's everywhere you look. Um, and so it, it was a big, uh, I guess, wave. Um, and I think that the other side, if you can talk about it in terms of sides, is just as re- it was reactionary. I mean, it's sort of like, no, not having it. We're not going to talk about this. It's too much. We need to get past it, get over it. And it makes me uncomfortable. And to be quite honest, I think it makes people scared. And so, so to the messaging point that Jasmine was saying, uh, feeding into that fear, which is, I think, what we saw in the last administration too, not just about race, but about a lot of things. Um, you feed into that fear and you feed that fear and it grows and it becomes more and more powerful. And I think we are seeing that. And that's why there's so many, um, you know, attacks on uh, critical race theory and, you know, misunderstandings for that matter, because as Jasmine mentioned, much of, if not most of what's being said is critical race theory is in fact not. I think the only thing that I will add to that is that um, the timing of all of this could not have been more like, I was say aligning the stars for this kind of, um, I guess, back and forth to be happening. Because like Elena was saying, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, were all, that all happened within the same year that the 1619 Project or the year after the 1619 project came out. And the, the Trump administration really just glommed on to 1619 and, and railed against it because of what that represented in terms of shifting the status quo and access to accurate information um, about our country's founding and our history, right? And, you know, the idea that that, that would be taught in classrooms was just too much. Mm. Um, both of you have been looking a lot at state legislation, these bills and everything, um, anti-CRT legislation. And can you just describe for the audience what you've seen, um, where you've seen this, which states you've seen this legislation um, pop up, what you've seen in the language? Okay, so um, in Texas, the legislation says a teacher, administrator, or other employee of a state agency, school district, or open enrollment charter may not require or make a part of course inculcation in the concept that one race is sexually in one race or sex, excuse me, is inherently superior to another race or sex, that an individual by virtue of that individual's race or sex is inherently racist or sexist or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, A little further down, it says that meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by members of a particular race to oppress members of another race. Um, with respect to their relationship to American values, slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from betrayals of or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States, which include liberty and equality. Like on its face, these are not things that I think a lot of people would disagree with, but like legislating them and, and, 
to kind of use them to restrict what teachers are allowed to teach and how teachers can talk about race in the classroom is, I think, where we have a huge problem. To hear the full interview with Jasmine and Elena, please consider supporting our work on Patreon. Our subscribers get access to full interviews, stickers, handwritten thank you notes, and of course, our undying gratitude for helping us offset some of the costs of continuing to create this podcast. Now, it's time to head to Data Town, our newest segment where we look at what the data says about the current state of education. A recent article from the 74 states that since standardized tests were largely canceled in 2020, and since many parents opted out of testing for their students in 2021, states now lack the year-to-year results they typically rely on to make decisions. According to the New Hampshire-based Center for Assessment, state data from last spring, while incomplete, still show large declines for students in reading and math. Many have advocated for resuming standardized testing as a data collection tool to see which students and schools need assistance and to give parents and educators insight into where schools stand. However, in the past, we know standardized tests have been burdensome and biased and using scores as accountability measures for schools and teachers have proven to be harmful, especially during the no child left behind era. How do you feel about this, Nathan? It's just so ridiculous to me that we're arguing for the res- you know the resuming of standardized tests because states now lack the year-to-year results they typically rely on to make decisions. Like what decisions are they making based on a set of standardized multiple choice questions? They're deciding which schools to give additional funding to, right? Like this is the bureaucracy operating from a position of a very limited view of a school that doesn't give you any kind of nuance, doesn't give you any kind of insight into what those teachers are doing, what those students are actually going through, the lived experiences of the people in that school. And they're making decisions for that school in that district about the funding that they'll get, the textbooks that they're going to get, you know, how many smart TVs are going to get installed in that building. When this pandemic is actually an opportunity for us to develop new ways of going into schools, talking to the people who are in those schools and understanding what's really going on there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it just speaks to the fact that the, you know, the the politicians, the bureaucrats, the districts, they need they need some form or they think they need some form of hard data in order to make these decisions. And that the system that they have to get that hard data, um, we know is biased and problematic. I feel conflicted because on the one hand, I do think, you know, when it says, you know, many have advocated for resuming standardized testing as a data collection tool, right, to see which schools need assistance, right, to give parents and educators insight. Well, definitely. I mean, I'm a proponent of collecting data, particularly around, you know, uh, math literacy, uh, uh, you know, uh, reading and, and, and language literacy, those skills are important to track and know about. The, the problem has been the historic tie of standardized test scores to school funding uh, in, in a punitive way. If you're not hitting 
certain targets we're going to keep funding from you instead of saying if you're not hitting certain targets we're going to give you more funding which is what they should do and sam if there's one thing i know about the future it's that it's going to be like the past unless we do something to change it <laughs> and standardized testing while we can say that it's for collecting data and figuring out which schools need more support it has historically been used to punish and to mandate and the problem is that you know this podcast, we've been talking about CRT and anti-CRT rhetoric in education and standardized test scores at this time are just going to add fuel to the argument that schools should not be teaching about things like systemic racism and oppression because no, it's more important that they be studying esoteric SAT words or, you know, spending more time on rote memorization of, of math problems. Right, because the you know system is reinforcing itself, right? As I mean, again, there is a world where you could craft standardized tests, and I believe that we could make standardized tests that were less biased, where we could get information that weren't as invasive. Maybe even the saying standardized test, maybe that's not the right way to put it. There are ways to collect data. There are ways to learn things about students and learn things about schools and, and use that information to give them help. But you're exactly right when you say the standardized tests that we have are a product of the system that we have. And the system that we have is historically and systemically racist. And so we're going to have those problems embedded in any kind of a tool produced by that system. I think I also would have to see, I mean, I don't have like one definitive um, view of this, but I would also have to see what ends up happening with institutions of higher education and how they then start treating the SAT and the ACT. And I've seen um, some schools already get rid of the way that they uh, count GREs and application packages and everything else. And so um, I realize that I've done nothing for this conversation, but make it more complicated. But that brings us to the end of today's episode. <laughs> Maybe some of our listeners can weigh in and help us solve this conundrum or at least shed some more light on it. Please don't forget to join the conversation on Reddit or Twitter and share your opinion on this week's debate. And to learn more about this week's guests and to find out how to support the podcast, visit learningmachinepodcast.com. Thank you to all those who teach, listen, and learn. See you next time.